I want to talk to you about something that's very, very exciting for me to talk about, and that is a victorious Christian lifestyle. Victorious living. Um, this past week, I got a very interesting phone call from a dear, dear friend. Uh, someone that's not a part of this church, but um, known them forever, um, more than 50 years. And they called and said that a friend of theirs was just down in the mouth, just down in the mouth, and and felt like it was at, he was kind of at the end of his rope. And, and the, the person asked me, would you please talk to him? Um, I've told him everything I can, and I, I, I've just seemed to hit a, a brick wall in this, this conversation we're having. And, and he told me that he would love to speak with you. Would you do it? And I said, of course. That would be my privilege. And so met him for breakfast. We, we had a, a glorious time, really a great time. But bottom line is he felt like there was like this dark cloud just just all over him. He, 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 couldn't, he didn't feel like anything that he was doing was meaningful. Nothing was going on in his life. And he, he just felt depressed about living. And, and I said, well, why do you want to talk to me? What, what is it that you... And he, and he paid me a wonderful honor. He, he said, I, I, I've known you and your wife for a while. And he said, um, I've watched you two. And then he said, there's something different about you. Well, you already know that. I mean, there is. But he didn't mean it like that. He said, there's something different about you. I want to know. And I said, well, the, the one thing that's different maybe that, that, that you don't know is my relationship with Jesus Christ is everything to me. He says, I just can't get over this. I can't get into this thing of faith because Look what faith has done to me. I've, I'm, I'm having the worst time. And actually he wasn't. By all standards, this guy is doing very, very well. He says, I, I mean, everything has gone haywire. He said, my dad just died. And then he's just, my, I just feel terrible. And I says, yeah. I said, now he's about my age. So I said, how old is your father? He says, 91. I said, boy, you got a lot of nerve. How long do you think your father was going to live? Did you not enjoy your father for these 60 plus years? And was that not a blessing? And he told me his dad was, meant everything to him. And I said, you're looking at faith. And you should be looking at fate. F-A-T-E. Now your fate is, not everything's going as you wish, but faith, that's a whole other thing. And, and that's kind of what I want to talk to you and me about this morning. We've come to a most glorious place in the book of Revelation, the 14th chapter. Would you please pick up your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter... By, by now your Bible's already turned itself, saying, when are you going to get in here? I want to talk to you about victorious Christian living. You see, what most of us have, not, I don't think you, but if you, let's, let's learn something really wonderful today. Just because you and I have become believers in Jesus Christ does not mean that everything is going to go perfectly. It just doesn't do that. We live in this sin-filled life, this world, and our victory, our triumph that has been promised to us is not here on this earth. Now, some of us might have a, really have it well. Things go very well in our lives. 
But for others it might not be. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to have a victorious, triumphant life. But your life is really centered on where we're going. He has told us over and over again, this is not our home. We are passing through. Our home is in heaven. So what does victory, what does triumphant living really mean? I mean from God's point of view, not the world's. Remember we said last week, Jesus Christ said in John um, chapter 14, verse 27, He said these words, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Therefore, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be fearful. In other words, the peace that he is talking about is not the peace that this world will give. So don't be troubled. Don't be fearful. Don't be uh, annoyed by it. Know that the peace that is coming for you is in a, a place that is, is precious. It's, it's the place of glory that we will one day live. And so with that statement, when Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, it's the peace that brings victory into your life. You see, the Christmas time we hear over and over again, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, ba, ba, ba. That's that's nothing of the Bible. God never promised peace on earth, never promised goodwill towards men. He wanted us to have that. But because of our sin, because of the way we are we made, that's not going to take place here. When, when our Lord says, my peace I give to you, he's talking about you individually, each one of us here, one by one, that we can have peace with God. And we can know the joy of our salvation and that we are at peace with the Father who has created us and who has called us to live with him forever and ever victoriously. Which, which leads Paul to write in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, that we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ who loves us. John wrote, as we've studied over and over again, talking about you have overcome the world, and he says, what is it that has overcome the world? What is our victory, John says in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5? It is our faith. That is our victory. And who is the one, he says, who has overcome the world? Well, the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, Thanks be to God, he pens, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But our triumphs and our victories are marred. They are, they are a setback because of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It takes its toll on every single one of us. I want you to hold your place here. This I would love for you to see. Romans chapter 7. Romans, of course, is to the left. And you'll, if you get to the book of Acts or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you've gone just a hair too far. Romans is just, as you're going to the left, just before the book of Acts. Look at chapter 7. I really would love for you to look at this because it is written by one of my heroes, of course, Paul. Paul asks a very penetrating question here and he makes a confession of who he is. 
This is one reason why I love Paul so very much. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, starting with verse 15. He says, For what I am doing, I don't understand. Watch this now. Watch what he says. He says in verse 15, I am not practicing what I would like to do. I am doing the very thing that I hate. Verse 16, But if I do the very thing that I don't want to do, I agree with the law. Confessing the law is good. So now, no longer I, am I the one who is doing it. Well, who's doing it, Paul? Well, Paul says, It is sin which dwells in me, Paul says. And then he makes this statement in verse 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. I can say amen to that. I get it. I get it, Paul. I get it. Thank you for saying that. Thank you, Paul, because I wrestle with the fact that I am an imperfect man. I, I wrestle with the fact that I, I sin too. He says that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. He says this amazing words, the willing is present. Yeah, I want to be good. But the doing of the good, he says, is not present. It's not in me. The good that I want, I don't do, he says. I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. Good gracious, Paul, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to see your struggle, because I struggle too. At the end of this particular chapter, chapter 7, in and, and verse 24, and, and it goes right into chapter 8. Don't, don't stop at verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who is going to set me free from this wrestling match that I have within my own body? Wanting to do good, not doing good. Everything seems to be upside down. Wretched person that I am, who's going to set me free? from this body of death. And then he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation. None. And those of you who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. If you turn back with me now to the book of Revelation, we're going to come across some men who are so victorious. And I'm going to show you why. And by the time you walk out of here today, I believe that you're going to have a, 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 a formula, a, an outline, if you would, on how to live a triumphant, victorious life. But let me first mention some that I mentioned, uh, I think, Friday evening when we had our, our uh, Christmas party. I mentioned Abraham. You know Abraham, he was the father of, of the Jewish nation. He is called a friend of God. And as we mentioned that night in, in, in Genesis chapter 12 and 20, twice, twice this guy lied about his wife, Sarah, so as to save his own soul, his own uh, body. He says, she's my sister. Go ahead. You know what that is? I, of all the things, of all the things in the Bible, that's the one thing I bet you I would not have done. That, I know I could have done a lot of things bad. But that's one. I don't see, I'm not just going to hand my wife over to anybody and say, go with, yeah, have fun. <laughs> go on. No, 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 no. You're going to have to kill me. But twice. And yet God called him a friend of his. Called him a man of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. What about David? David, sad to tell you, he's one of my heroes. 
I'll tell you one reason why. He's a doggone scoundrel. Now, he did something that I've never done by the grace of God. He committed adultery. And then he murdered the woman he committed adultery with, Bathsheba. He murdered her husband or had him killed, put him on the front line so he had to die in a battle so as to protect himself because Bathsheba got uh, pregnant because of their affair. You know what God calls David? Pardon me? Can you believe it? If you didn't hear, God calls David a man after my own heart. And you know why? Because David was quick to confess his sin. When he was confronted with wrong, he said, You're right, Lord. I'm wrong. How about Peter? Peter, when the Lord said, I'm going to go through some difficult times, I'm going on trial, I'm going to be crucified, and Peter says, not on my watch. No way. No way, Lord. And he said he was going to die, and Peter says, no, I will die for you for that not to happen. And the Lord looked at Peter in the eyes of Pete. Before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. It happened. In a courtyard, a young girl, not, not, a big, not a big hulking guy came to intimidate him. A young girl said, you're one of them, aren't you? And he says, no, nah, I don't know him. And then a little bit later he says, yeah, he, he's a Galilean. Listen to him. He, he's with him, with Jesus. He says, I don't even know the guy. And the third time they came and he swore and he cursed and he says, I'd never known him. And then he heard the cock crow and he started to weep bitterly. As we learned from that lesson, when the Lord rose from the dead, he told Mary and the, the women that came to anoint him with oil, he said, go back and tell the disciples I'm alive. Or the angels told, said, go back and tell that Jesus Christ is alive. And tell Peter. Tell Peter. The one who denied me. Sometimes our greatest triumphs are flawed because, as it says in the Bible, Old Testament as well as New, we're flawed, you and I. It says there is no one who does not sin. It says there is not a righteous person on this earth. It says there is no one here who continually does good and who never sins. No, not one of us. Thus Proverbs 29 mentions, Who can say I have cleansed my heart? Who can say I am pure from sin? The Bible is clear. None of us can. Thus the reason for Jesus Christ. Thus the reason for the baby that we celebrate on Christmas morning all year long. Thus the reason for Christmas. But you can't have Christmas without the cross. You can't have that because it was there on the cross that our Lord shed his blood for the forgiveness of yours and my sin. And you can't have the cross and Christianity without the resurrection. Because it was through the resurrection that you and I have our sins forgiven and have an assurance that we will live eternally with our Lord and victoriously with Him. And so it all ties together. And that's why it's such a travesty, but it's true. They're, they try to take away Christmas, right? Happy holidays. Give me a break. Take away the nativity scene. Go ahead. But you can't take away what's in here. You can't take away this 
this love that I have of Jesus Christ, he can't stop me from proclaiming his name. Unless you kill me. And then as Paul said, hey, whoop-de-doo. For me to live as Christ, die, you just gave me a favor, pal. It's gain. And so what I want us to see today is some of the most victorious men that ever walked the face of this earth. But I'm going to share with you here in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, why, why they were so victorious. And we can all incorporate what they've done into our own lives. These guys are just like you and me, human beings. Read with me, please, chapter 14, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and marvel. John writes, I looked, and behold, a lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. They have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are the ones who have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lambs. This is the one, these are the ones who are found, excuse me, these are the ones where there was no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Please forgive me, I misread verse 5. And no lie, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Father, May we understand what this means. May we recognize and realize that every single one of us here can be triumphant, victorious. We can, we can live this life and, and be honored like this, these 144,000 men who triumphantly did, Father, something that was unprecedented. They lived in the worst, worst, worst of times and, and they come through unscathed, Father, because of who you are, not because of who they are. Same with us. Our Lord sent 144,000, Father, of them out into this earth and 144,000 of them came back. Not a one did he lose. Same with us, Father. And so I pray that you will bless us, please, Allow us to have this wonderful, wonderful blessing of going into Christmas really sensing who you are in our own lives so that we might understand what really victorious living is like. What, it is, what does it mean to be triumphant, Father? Please, let us know. Move me aside, I beg of you, Lord. Let me not hinder what you want to say to each and every single one of us. I pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Why are these guys so victorious? They lived, as you and I have studied, through the worst holocaust in the, in the entire statement of this earth. There's never been anything, anything any worse than this. They lived through the tribulation. And here they are, triumphant, standing with the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in His glorified form, on Mount Zion, unscathed. 
You remember, and maybe you don't, but back in chapter 6, it was the people on this earth, the people who dwelled on the earth, they wanted the mountains to fall on them. They wanted the rocks to hide them from the presence of the Lamb who sat on the throne. The great day of His wrath was coming, and they said, Who is able to stand? And the, the word is nobody apart from Jesus Christ. No one can stand. At this point in the tribulation period, there has been widespread wars, severe famines, plagues, earthquakes, which resulted in millions upon millions of people murdered, killed. Sin is running rampant all over the earth, fueled by Satan and his demonic hosts. And against that background, we see these 144,000 standing with the Lord on Mount Zion, surviving Satan's wrath. Nothing could harm them. They are like what Malachi says in Malachi 3, 16 and 17, where the Lord of hosts says, they will be mine. Not just talking about these 144,000. He's talking about all people that come and trust in him. We, they will be mine, he says. I will spare them as a man would spare his own son. Listen, Christian, throughout history, God has protected every single person who has ever entrusted their lives to him. Noah during the flood, Rahab in Jericho, Lot in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the children of Israel when the plagues hit Egypt. As Psalms 37 says, verses 39 through 40, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is our strength in times of trouble. He, the Lord, helps us. He delivers us. He delivers us from the wicked and saves us because we take our refuge in Him. Take our refuge in Him. That's a key. And so when John says in verse 1, I looked on, and, and on Mount Zion, behold, I saw these 144,000 along with, with the Lamb, and on their foreheads, He has written His name and the name of his father, which is, I feel sorry for those of you that got a full head of hair. He's not going to be able to have a lot of room to write your name up there. Look at here. Yeah, paintbrush he could use. <laughs> the psalmist wrote of this particular moment, because it is a, a huge moment in redemptive history, Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Here's what the psalmist wrote. God speaking, but for me I have installed my king, talking about his son upon Mount Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you will shatter them like earthenware. This is a huge moment redemptive moment that we are looking at here at chapter 14. And so in verse 1, with the Lamb, Jesus are the 144,000. His name, the Father's name, written on their forehead for their protection. We just read in chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, that all the unbelievers were required to put the name of the beast on either their forehead or their right hand. That was for their survival. If you remember, listen to what it says in, in chapter 13 and verse 17. He provided that no one should be able to buy or sell except the person who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
And so where God gives us the mark for our, our protection, Satan gives the mark for survival. Now despite Satan's best efforts, all 144,000 survive. They are living proof, proof of the promises of God. It says in Psalms 91, You will not need to be afraid of the terror that comes by night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noon, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not approach you. It goes on to say that the Lord God has made, oh no, for you, excuse me, for you, verse 9, you have made the Lord your refuge. That's in Psalms 91, verse 9. God will protect his own, namely you, if you've come to trust in him and believe in him. And he will bring you triumphantly into his kingdom. What happens here on earth, you can have peace, you can have contentment, even in the midst of trials, but you can live a victorious life knowing that your home is not here, your home is there. And soon, soon, very soon, you and I will be there with our Lord forever. Soon by, when you get older, it's sooner, <laughs> days go by a little quicker than you think. God protects his own Jesus Christ pro promised every single believer who came to him in John 6:37, all he said that the Father gives to me will come to me. And he says, and all who come to me I will certainly not cast out. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. My Father who has given you to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father, Jesus Christ said, are one, protected and secure. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, this whole, you might want to read it later, Romans 8, 28 through 39, but part of it is this. He just asks this rhetorical question, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says, who will separate you from the love of Christ? And the answer is no one. No one. You're victorious. Which leads, in, in, Psalm, in Revelation chapter 14, leads the 144,000 to praise God. That's why I would love for you and me to praise Him as often, as much as we can, to worship Him through song. Because John writes in verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven. It's like, like the sound of many waters. Now that's, that's quoted out of Ezekiel. Ezekiel likened the voice of God to the sound of many waters. John wrote in Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, that the voice of God was like the sound of many waters. And so he says, I heard this sound like a, a harpist playing on his harp. In verse 3, then they sang a new song before the throne. They sang this new song in verse 3 before the four living creatures and before the elders, I believe that to be the church, all the Christians who are up there. And then John writes, nobody could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Okay, may I say to you that I can't wait to hear that? In each service, I, I confess, I, I love to watch some of you worship the Lord, in particular Jeff Ochoa. I don't know if you know who Jeff is, but you ought to get to know him. One of the stalwarts of this church. And I love to watch him worship. And when they start to sing that song, I pray the Lord will allow me to nestle up next to Jeff and watch and listen 
to this 144,000 men singing a song that only they know unto the Lord. I mean, it brings tears to my mind just thinking about it. Why is this song restricted to just them? I think I'm going to try to explain. Look at verses 4 and 5. These 144,000 men are the ones, verse 4, who have not been defiled with women. They have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Mark that. They have been purchased from among men as first fruits unto God, to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. What in the world does that mean? Well, despite the rampant sexual sin that was surrounding these 144,000, they are not defiled. They keep themselves chaste, it says here. Now, God honors sexual purity, but also God honors sex within the marriage. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says the marriage bed is undefiled. In fact, he speaks of sex within marriage as a a joyful experience. That's not talking about what just sex within sin is talking about sex outside of the of the marriage bed. They keep themselves chaste. Listen, God honors sexual purity in spite of the corrupt world system that these 144,000 were living under. They were triumphant in being chaste. Paul writes to I believe it's to Timothy in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul cautions Timothy in first, or 2 Timothy 2.22. He says, Timothy, flee from youthful lusts. Rather, he says, pursue righteousness, pursue faith, love, peace with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. How does one maintain the purity of heart? Well, verse 4 gives you the example, the greatest example. Verse 4 tells us that these 144,000 men are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I want to leave you with that. Follows the Lamb wherever He goes. Nothing, nothing will mar their dedication to Jesus Christ. When Jesus called people, when he walked this earth, the two words he used the most was, follow me. If you recall, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said these words, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, when the rich young ruler said, I've done all these things, then the Lord said to him, okay, if you've done all these things, if you want to be complete, he says, go, sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when Jesus was talking to the unbelieving Jews in John chapter 10, saying to them, you are not of my sheep, you, my sheep hear my voice. He says that to them, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they know me, and they follow me, Jesus Christ says. You want to be chaste? You want to be pure? You want to be honorable? Then follow Jesus Christ with all of your heart.
Our Lord says it's critical to a godly life. And why follow him? Verse 4, look. Because they were purchased, so have you been purchased. You've known Christ as your Savior. You have been purchased with the greatest gift and greatest payment, or not gift, greatest, uh, you've been bought with a price. I got off my notes. You've been purchased. You've been purchased, it says in verse 4, from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were the first part of the harvest. And the people were taught that they were to give the very best that they grew unto the Lord. That was their sacrifice, to give Him their best. I can't ever read this place in Scripture that I don't think of one of my heroes in the faith, and that is a a man who has preached faithfully for I don't know how many years, Pastor Chuck Smith. This guy is, he is amazing. And he told me this story personally once, talking about first fruits, giving the, having the people bring their best unto the Lord. He says, you know, one day, he said, some couple, really wonderful couple in my church came to me and says, we just purchased a brand new piano, Pastor Chuck, and we want to give you our old piano, but it's not old, it's, it's like new. And he said to them, I don't want your old piano. I want, I want the one you just purchased. I want you to give the Lord your best. You keep what is not your best. Give unto the Lord what is your best. And then if you know Chuck, he's got this wonderful laugh, deep. (laughs) And he started laughing at me. And I said, what did they do? They gave me the new piano, he said. (laughs) But not me. They gave it unto the Lord. Now, I don't have the nerve to tell you that. I wouldn't. You would never have to hear me say that to you. I, I, I would think, oh, what do they think of me? They must think I'm the worst. You know, I know. I, I go through all of that, but not Pastor Chuck. We are to give the Lord our first fruits. We're to give our Lord our best as we serve Him. And then in verse 5, it ends by saying, There was no lie found in their mouth. They were blameless. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 13 wrote, The remnants of Israel will do no wrong and they will tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 and verse 25 say, We are to speak the truth in love. We are to lay aside all falsehoods. Last week we had a family meeting and through the internet it was pretty much running rampant that that I was a liar, and that Pastor Bill had also lied. It was critical for us to be able to tell you the truth. By the grace of God, there were witnesses, and so everybody knew what was really truly said. Let me tell you something. There's only one thing that I have to offer to you, and when it's gone, I'm done, and that's my integrity. If I truly am a liar in that case, then I ought to step down and never preach to you another message. I should never be able to say, thus saith the Lord. It was critical that we, we tried to care for that because, it, in fact, those things are still running around, but, but that's okay. That's fine. But now those who were here at that meeting heard the truth, and they heard the truth not from me, but someone who was in the meeting and heard everything. We are to speak the truth to one another in love. We're to lay aside all falsehood. Also, it says in verse 5 that they are blameless, though. And I've just taught you a little while ago, the Scriptures did, that none of us 
None of us are without sin. How can we be blameless? There's only one who is blameless that walks, that ever walked the face of this earth, and that's Jesus Christ, of course. But once you and I come to know him, once you and I come to believe and trust in him, he then gives us his righteousness. We are now seen by God in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. He does not see us. He sees his son in us. And he sees that righteousness in us. Therefore, we are blameless. Our Lord has died for every single one of our sins. And like the 144,000 who were the first fruits purchased, purchased by God, just as you and I have been, they are called holy and blameless. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Listen, our Lord chose us in Him before the foundation of this world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Like the Holy One who has called you, you be holy in all your behavior. You shall be holy, for He is holy. But Jude, verse 24, tells us how. Jude says, He, God, is able to keep you and me from stumbling, and He is able to make us stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy. As you and I go into this Christmas season, know that God has called you to be a man, a woman, who walks with Him in integrity, who loves Him with all your heart and soul, and who has forgiven you your sin. That's the very essence of Christmas. I know that's an Easter message, but I tell people when they come on Easter who doesn't, don't visit with us often and, and are here kind of just coming to church once in a while, that we talk about Easter here at this church all the time. Because without Easter, we have nothing else to stand upon. It is the risen, risen Lord that gives us the very essence of who we are. And so the celebration of that baby born in a manger is everything. It's everything. Don't let people steal your joy of Christmas. Don't. And how you and I stay blameless and holy? That is to be near the Lord, follow Him in all that we do, all that we are. Let the people that you come in contact with this Christmas know that you belong to Him. Now, you don't have to just blurt it out. You can just do it sometimes. Like this guy that, that talked to me the other day at breakfast, I don't remember ever sharing Christ with him. He just said he saw something. I don't know what that is. I can't make sense of it. But I say that you and I and all of us have an opportunity to do that. Be a light in this dark world. Be a place where someone can see the very essence of Christmas in and through our lives, the joy that we have knowing our Savior. Follow Him. Whatever it takes, follow Him. Father, as we go into this wonderful and God-blessed Christmas season, I pray that you will find the joy of Christ in us. I pray that we would be holy and blameless before you because of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we would follow him. 
And because of that, we would be blameless. Righteous. Not our righteousness. Not our being blameless. But, but your Son giving us His righteousness. Giving us the ability to be blameless in this world that is so, so terrible. Father, I pray that you would bless every single person here. Bless those that are going to Mexico, please. Bless those of us who stay behind and will pray for them. And I pray, Father, that you'll give each of us a very Merry Christmas. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I love you with all my heart. Merry, Merry Christmas, everybody. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks.